Don't pay retail for your diamond engagement ring or gift. Come to CleanOrigin.com. Founded by a leading family in the diamond industry for more than a century, we're experts in lab-grown diamonds because that's all we do. Clean Origin, the only diamond jewelers who give you a 100-day, no-questions-asked return on your purchase. Head to CleanOrigin.com or one of our retail stores and mention code RADIO10 for 10% off your purchase. That's CleanOrigin.com, code RADIO10. Man listening is 100% advertising free, but we do have expenses. We have no dues, no fees, no ads, but we do have expenses. If you want to help out with that, just go on over to Patreon, P-A-T-R-E-O-N dot org, and look for Man Listening. Thanks so much. And in doing that work of helping people experiencing homelessness, I think I, I found my own way home. What is the sound of one man listening? This is Man Listening, a fresh podcast featuring the stories of strong women who bounce back. Man Listening, because every woman deserves to be heard. Hi there, I'm Stuart Watson and welcome to Man Listening. I bumped into Kathy Izzard at the Park Road Bookstore and I've always wanted to talk to her always wanted to interview her and some weeks later we got the chance she's tremendously busy and she's an author and just a humanitarian the one word i think of her is compassion Uh, has given so much to the city of charlotte the whole region and is really exemplary so now kathy izzard where were you born i was born in el paso texas hospital or home Hospital. For your mother, your number what of how many? I am the third of three daughters. All girls. All girls. And you had all girls. And I have four girls, which was our third try for a boy was twin girls. So we are, <laughs> we got four daughters in the equation. So. <laughs> Did you really want a boy? Um, I was completely and totally happy with all girls. My husband, who's a former All-American lacrosse player, was kind of hoping for a boy to play lacrosse with, but we just ended up uh, treating our girls like tomboys and he taught them to shoot hoops and play lacrosse and field hockey and coach them in basketball. So he kind of got what he was looking for anyway. Just to understand, Kathy, what should I know about your mother? Um, My mother was incredible. Well, she is. She's still alive. She's 87, still lives in El Paso, Texas. She's incredibly bright and creative um, and really taught all of her three daughters about the arts um, and about service. How did her creativity manifest itself? We had an art studio in our home. And so, you know, whereas some kids might have been told out to go outside and play, we were told to go in the art studio and paint or do enamels and fire up the kiln. So a little bit different maybe than some upbringing. But I think um, she used her creativity as a way to balance, my mom also battled a bipolar disorder. And so she struggled with that. And her creativity, I think, was a way, um, it was a, a life-saving force for her, her creativity and her faith both. How old was she before they gave a name to what she had? Gosh, great question. I think that was part of the problem. You know, I, I was born in 1963 in El Paso, Texas. And the first time I remember my mom getting hospitalized was 1969. So I was six years old. And I think I was probably a senior in high school before we really started dialing in on what was going on and before we really got medically managed almost 22 years. So she she calls those uh, years her lost years um, of trying to find the right diagnosis and the right chemical combination that would balance her brilliant brain. But finally we did. And she's lived um, a really, you know, great life. She's been a, a graduated with a master's in fine art and you know as well as she got her undergrad undergrad degree before that at queen's university in charlotte so she's done a lot of things but yeah that was definitely a constant struggle in our household and in our life growing up would you guys knowing what we know about genetics and everything did that mean you sisters were like hyper aware like always always hyper aware and although Um, You know, my sisters and I have not been, you know, diagnosed with anything as serious as bipolar. Certainly all of us 
struggle um, with anxiety and depression over the years. I've certainly have seen that in, in my daughters. It's definitely a family thread and a family gene. I got the big lotto of epilepsy. So I have uh, I have grand mal seizures. It hasn't really stopped me. I don't know. I, I got diagnosed at 17 and it hasn't really been a, that much of a factor because I got the kind of the right medication within five years. So it was it was a better outcome for me. And as you know, the bipolar, there's still there's still, because everyone's different, they're still tweaking the meds. Oh my gosh, it's such a art and science combined. You know, my mother's history with bipolar was certainly why I um, was involved in the efforts with Bill and Betsy Blue to build Hopeway. Um, I started with them working on that in 2013 and then um, worked to help open it in 2016 and still sit on the advisory board. But it is something that I think you know, looking back, I think, oh my gosh, you know, my mother's story maybe could have been so different if we had a place like Hopeway to really go and get dialed in. Therapy, group therapy, the holistic treatment that they do at Hopeway would have been such a gift in our lives in Texas. My daughter was referred to Hopeway. Oh, really? So, thank you. It's definitely, I was so honored to work with Bill and Betsy and be a part of that journey. It was, I think, remarkable how this community came together to work on Hopeway. It was certainly 12 of us who started the original board for Hopeway and none of us, of, of those 12, not a single nurse, doctor, you know, psychiatrist, no one with any professional background, yet each of us had a family member that we wished had found better care over the years. So we were driven by um, personal passion and frankly kind of remarkable i think that um, we could pull off raising 27 million dollars and opening a, a world-class psychiatric facility um, in no small part because allison karoski Maisie came to lead it and um, bill's passion that led him to leave his job to do that full time you know so it was i think a, an incredible community effort to create that resource do you find that a lot of times when there's something like that that people draw upon their own personal experience, that that's what drives their uh, charitable or creative ventures as it comes out of their own personal experience? I, I believe I have seen that, you know, having worked on both More Place in Charlotte and then Hopeway, I, I definitely believe people want to do good. They want to be a part of successful um, ventures. There's a lot of people who, who maybe have resources, whether it's it's financial or their time. And once you put something um, in front of them that they could be a part of, that also maybe relates to their own story. I, you know, I think the power is, is endless of that. That's certainly what we found with More Place. People came with real estate backgrounds and all kinds of things to make homes for those who had no homes. And then again with Hopeway, you know, to create a resource where there where there was none. So. I think it's two parts. There's definitely people here with stories that, that match what we are trying to do in each case in More Place and Hopeway. But I also think Charlotte is a remarkably giving community, very philanthropic. I think it service runs deep here. I think that's why I like it so much here. I think there's so many people who want to do good and want to do good things. And, and certainly that's how I've tried to live my life. So I, that's why I think Charlotte's a pretty remarkable city in that regard. When you're about two years old, your mom would say, that Kathy is so... Um, maybe clumsy. My nickname was Boomer. I, I, my, my what was Boomer for? Boomerlini, because I was always falling down and hurting myself. I don't know. Maybe that's why they enrolled me in dance classes. We all became, you know, little ballerinas because, I don't know, maybe my sister started first, but my nickname growing up was Boomer and Boomerlini. So they, she would probably say that I was clumsy. I don't know it too. And were some of your sisters like graceful? Oh yeah, I, I have a, both of my older sisters went on to do some professional dance. And then my oldest sister is the Dean of NYU Tisch in New York. So she's <laughs> hanging out with all kinds of artists up there. So her creativity and her grace ran into a, a professional capacity. Mine did not, so. Yeah, high school. High school. Uh, if you look at the old yearbooks, Kathy was always doing what? Well, I was the editor of the yearbook, so that was that Did was that one piece. Did that mean you featured prominently? No, I think it's the opposite. It means you take yourself out. But um, I, I was a really good student. I was uh, all Coronado girl. So for 
you know, all around academics and athletics and, and whatever. They pick one boy and one girl from the high school class. And I was all Coronado girl. And Greg Spear was all Coronado boy. Ah, when you left home, you went where? I went um, first to the University of Texas at Austin, and that's where I got my undergrad degree. In? In um, advertising. Why? Why? Because the classes looked like a lot of fun for four years, that I could, you know, kind of do some fun classwork while I really thought I was going to law school. My dad was a lawyer. That was his alma mater, University of Texas at Austin, even though he was... um, a Davidson undergrad before that. And I thought, oh, I'm going to go to Texas and I'm going to be like my dad and I'm going to be a lawyer. And I got distracted by all the fun things you got to do in advertising and graphic design. And I never even took, the, I, I never took the LSAT and never went to law school. I went from the University of Texas at Austin and got a job in Charlotte, North Carolina with an ad agency and came here thinking I would be here maybe a year. Um, but I met my husband and got engaged after 42 days of knowing him and ended up staying in Charlotte. So it was a great left turn for me. Were you much of a party girl in college? I was a real, in high school, much more of a, a, a definite, you know, I got great grades, but I was having fun on the weekends. You know, we're a border city. So, yeah, there was a lot that could happen in El Paso and Juarez in my high school years, college. Um, I think I did a lot of that in um, my high school years. So I think college was a little more, less party for me, but. um, Do you ever go back to Juarez? Well, sadly, it's a really, you know, it's kind of become a dangerous place. And in my high school years, you could, you know, bop across the border and we did, you know, on a Friday night with a bunch of friends. And, but, you know, there's so much um, fear now with the drug cartels and what's happening in a border city. People in El Paso really don't go back and forth across the way they used to. Everyone used to go for dinner or go for shopping or, you know, and not at all um, really anymore. In fact, a lot of the restaurants have set up shop in Texas. So Favorite place to get Mexican food in El Paso? Oh, that's a toss-up. Probably the place that closed Casa Jurado. They had my favorite uh, chili con queso, um, but they've closed. So now it's probably um, Avalas. What I love about that culture is it's not just white folks and Anglos and Mexicans. It's also indigenous peoples. And there's a real kind of melding. There's a, uh, you know, there's the Spanish speaking element. And then there's also indigenous persons and it's a real melding right there. El Paso is a complete melting pot. I had no idea till I left there, understanding that what I, the community that I was raised in, it, there was um, much more meritocracy. I guess people were just taken for who they were. Skin color was not really um, looked at that much. Language kind of fluidly went back and forth between English and Spanish. You were taught Spanish from K through 12. And some of the the racial biases I found when I moved to Charlotte were really surprising to me because I didn't, um, I had really truly not experienced them in my zero through 18 years. And, um, you know, at college, you're not paying attention. But by the time I got here for a young professional life, I was really struck by all the differences and the biases here in, in Charlotte, which really opened my eyes. I, I had not grown up that way or seen that or been raised that way. I think people, if you're in El Paso, Texas, you, I don't know, maybe you went there years ago to kind of drop off the edge of the earth and whoever was there was one big community. Well, how did you get from Texas to Charlotte, North Carolina? Was this just the job that was offered? Obviously, your parents had some kind yeah, of... Yeah, so my dad went to Davidson, my mom went to Queens, and they, you know, I don't know how many marriages evolved that way in the 50s and 60s, but my parents were, were one of them, the Davidson boys dating the Queens girls. and um, But that really wasn't why I was here. I had um, interviewed for jobs in Minneapolis, D.C., and came to visit my aunt and uncle here. My uncle's Rolf Neal. He was part of the Charlotte Observer, and he said, oh, you should come look at jobs in Charlotte. It's a really a legend. Up-end. Yeah, he's a legend. A very up-and-coming city, and so, um, you know, I stopped to see Uncle Ann and Uncle Rolf, I mean, Aunt Ann and Uncle Rolf. 
and interviewed. I did end up getting a job offer here as well as one in Washington, D.C., and I decided to take the Washington, D.C. job. And the guy who was hiring me in D.C. said, did you get another job offer? And I said, yeah, I got one with an ad agency in Charlotte, North Carolina. And he said, take it. I said, what? And he said, oh, yeah, I would really love to have you here. But if you come here, you will do government work for the rest of your life. And I don't think that's good for your career. You should take the one in Charlotte. So really kind of happenstance, I, I took that job. And like I said, I thought I'd be here a year and and then maybe try somewhere else, but ended up putting down some pretty firm roots when I met my husband and we ended up having four kids. So. Where did you meet that guy? Where did I meet that guy? At a backyard keg party, um, you know, kind of for the what young neighborhood? adult. Um, it was on Circle Avenue, a house on Circle Avenue. Was invited there. Okay. It was a little tiny house rented by some, you know, girls my age who were in their, you know, 22 and new professionals too. And they just had a big keg party in their backyard. And I walked in and I saw my husband. He was 6'5 and the tallest guy there. And, you know, I'm only 5'3. I don't know why I picked the tallest guy there, but there was something about him. And I walked up to him and we started talking and talked for two hours. He had just moved, you know, pretty recently from New York and I was from Texas. And I don't know, we just talked for two hours and I went home and one of my friends from El Paso was calling my apartment on the landline at midnight when I walked in the door and I picked up the phone and she said, how's it going in Charlotte? And I said, great, I met the guy I'm going to marry. So you knew it. Well, I, I felt it. I felt like I would, yeah, I felt like there was something about this guy. Did he feel the same thing? No. Ah. <laughs> I mean, we had, he had a good conversation, but what happened from there is I left and I hadn't given him my phone number or anything else. And, you know, I didn't know. I just left and all the way home, driving home, I was thinking, wow, that, that guy was really interesting. And he had told me in that conversation that he worked out at the Y. Um, so I joined the Y the next day. The Dowd? The Dowd Y. I joined <laughs> the Dowd Y the next day looking for him took classes for two weeks and never saw them. I was like, oh my gosh, this, this is killing me, right? But I didn't know anyone in town. I was like a, an adventure for myself to try and figure out if I could find this guy again. And then um, finally I, I saw him and he said, you wouldn't want to have a beer with me, would you? And I was in my head going, yes, I've been waiting two weeks. And, <laughs> I joined the Y. And sweating a lot for this date. Um, and then we ended up having uh, dinner or drinks every night for six weeks in a row. And he proposed late night over, you know, a dinner. And there there we are. So oh. 35 years later, we're married 35 years. So. When you say New York, what do you mean? Rye, New York. But he was born in Dalton, Georgia. Ah, yeah. did he grow up in Dalton, Georgia? Uh, no, they left there when he was about two or three, then lived in Dallas, Texas for a little while. And then his dad went up um, to the New York area to work with a carpet company, Galaxy Carpets. Right, because Dalton, huge carpet. Yeah, and so um, they needed a salesman based in New York. You could fly out of JFK because his dad um, sold carpets in the Middle East. Um, believe it or not, he was selling carpets to people in the Middle East rather than importing them back. So wow. he was um, selling bright lime green and orange shag carpeting to Middle East folks. So. Did you all have a discussion about having children? I, I'm sure we did. Um, he was from a big family, five kids, and I just loved it. Like the first time I went to his house, there's a um, watercolor on the wall that one of their friends had done, and it was a kind of a caricature cartoon of kids spilling out of the house and dogs running around and swimming pool, like plastic kiddie pool with water spurting out of it. It's this hilarious, you know, kind of family circus thing. And I looked at that picture and I said, yes, sign me up. That's, that's what I want. And, um, and he did too. So I think there was an understanding between us that we would, um, not have an only child if, if we could help it. So would you call that planning? Planning, uh, no, there was not. A, I mean, I was I was working, he was working. We did end up having kids for three years, and then we had several in a row, so kind of quickly. So um, it wasn't necessarily planned. They were all wanted, and we wanted a big family, but there wasn't a lot of decision. We, I don't know. I think I did things a little more, as you can tell. If I said yes to a guy marrying him after forty-two days, 
there was not a whole, we were not a lot of deep planners, so. Where did you go to church with your mom and dad? First Presbyterian Church of El Paso, Texas. Uh, were your mom and dad Presbyterians? Long, I am from a long line of not only Presbyterians, but Presbyterian ministers and missionaries. It runs really deep in my family. And do you still go to Presbyterian Church? I do not. We started going to the First Presbyterian Church in Charlotte, um, which is how I ended up getting into a whole vein that we haven't talked about, working um, with people experiencing homelessness. I worked on their soup kitchen team. But when um, my twins were approaching confirmation in seventh grade, they begged me um, if they could do confirmation um, at the Episcopal Church, at Christ Church, because that's where all their friends were doing confirmation. So I, I said, okay. They said they would never complain if I allowed them um, to do confirmation there. So I was basically dropping them off for confirmation and sitting in on these really interesting uh, faith forums that Chip Edens was running at the time and really interesting speakers. I got hooked and um, we ended up staying there and that's where we attend and that's our church community now. What does faith mean to you? What does it mean if you identify as a Presbyterian or a Christian or a follower of Jesus? What does that mean? Well, and I think I struggled with that for a long time because I, I didn't identify with any of that. I um, Because I'd been forced marched to the First Presbyterian Church of El Paso on Sundays, not only on Sundays, but Sunday afternoons and Wednesday suppers and, you know, all kinds of things. My parents did everything there. I certainly left it for a really long time. And what took us back to the First Presbyterian uh, Church of Charlotte was that we were at the Dowd Y again with our four little girls in bathing suits and swim trunks and, you know, teaching them to swim in that indoor pool. And one of my little girls looked up on the wall and said, Mommy, who's that man? Uh, <laughs> and it was a picture of Jesus. At and which point all your Presbyterian ancestors... Completely rolled over in their graves. And I, I thought, wow, maybe I've taken this a bit too far. She should be able to identify important historical and religious figures. So why don't we do... Or, or at um, least the waspy the, version of yes, him. Yes, exactly. Exactly. So um, that's a pretty iconic photograph or, you know, not to illustration not to be able to identify. Um so we started back that way. But to me, I think I've been finding my way into faith for the last uh, really decade and, and wondering what that means. I, I, I wrote a book with a subtitle, A Memoir of Finding Faith in, in Ourselves and Something Bigger. I think that's what it, it means to me originally. My second book um, kind of... Faith a, and Ourselves or Faith in Ourselves? Um, a Memoir of Finding Faith in Ourselves in our, and Something Bigger. And so something that's bigger. the 100 Story Home. So that was um, how I worked with housing and I quit my job and I was in advertising for all those years, for 20 plus years. And then in 2007, um, quit my job to go work for the Urban Ministry Center and lead a program called Homeless to Homes. And in doing that work of helping people experiencing homelessness, I think I, I found my own way home. I, I realized... Um, I was spiritually homeless. I realized I had really wanted to to live a life of service, and I had not. And in doing the work and meeting the people I was doing, I really started to find my path and what I thought I was meant to do. And I, I really, I think of, of faith as a broader umbrella. I don't think of it as a religion, um, a specific for one person. I believe we all kind of find our, our own path um, to God and to grace. And I'm still working on mine. I'm still working on the answers. I don't have um, a, a one theological perspective, but um, I, I definitely believe in that um, there is, we are here for a reason. We are not here by accident. There, there is a guiding force. There is a grace running through the world connecting us all. Um, and I, I find a lot of uh, comfort in that. You pray? I do now. I didn't used to. What do you think it's okay to ask for? Well, you can absolutely ask for anything you want, but it's, it doesn't mean that's what you will get delivered, right? And, and so I think there's a, there's a couple of things. You can, you can look at praying as, as a one-way note, hey, or here's my order menu, which I don't think that works very well. 
or you can look at it as kind of a divine conversation of, of you speaking and grace listening and knowing what your desires are and, you know, asking that you, if you don't receive what it is that you hope you want, at least receive understanding for what you're not getting. But give me a God shot, like... Give you a what? A God shot, like when you, like something happened and you were just like, that's, that's not... Coincidence? It's, yeah, that's not random molecules. Well, I think I've, I've written about 600 pages of that. So 300 in one book and 300 in another and probably well, working I, on I just 300 on another. I just want one. So when we were working on building more place, I started receiving um, letters, cards in the mail. And the first time I received one, it was just a pink envelope. It looked like a Hallmark card. I opened it up. I didn't know who it was from, and when I opened it, a, a few dollars fell out. And when I read the note, it was not signed by anyone. It just said, may God bless and multiply this small amount. And that was it. And I thought, oh my gosh, like we're raising $10 million, and someone sent us $7 with their prayers and their hopes that it, that it might matter. And about two weeks later, I received another one. Um, same message, may God bless and multiply this small amount, and a few dollars, $12 maybe this time. And I started getting them every two to three weeks. Um, same thing, a card, the same type of blessing. Was and it a the few same dollars. handwriting? Same handwriting, same person. No idea who it was from. I, my mother famously sends Hallmark cards. And it, at first I thought it was her. It was not. But again, that started making me think, who, who is this? What is this? Anyway, this went on for um, almost three and a half, four years um, until we opened more place. And they kept coming. Um, to, to more place. And there was a man that we housed um, in more place um, named Dale Haley, who had one of the most famous stories in Charlotte. He would not live in the shelters. He had a lot of mental health challenges. And so he went outdoors and dug a hole in the ground near the train tracks. And he lived in the hole in the ground and would come get soup at the urban ministry center until the day that he moved into more place. And what we didn't know and what Dale couldn't tell us was that he had a mom in Charlotte who didn't know where he was, but she knew that he was homeless. And she read about more place in the paper and she thought, well, I may not be able to help my son, but I'll be able to help somebody's son. And I'm going to send my prayers and my cards and my blessings. And I hope that someday... It helps my son. And four years later, it did because we moved Dale Haley into more place. He reconnected with his mother and we found the answer to our mailbox angel story. I asked her, why did you do that? Why did you have that faith all that time to be sending $7 and $10 and, and thinking that it would matter? And she said, I, I read what you were doing and there was no way anyone would be doing that unless God was in it. I just hoped that one day it was going to lead me back to my son, and it did. So her faith that God was in it kind of bolstered your faith. Is that what I'm hearing? Yeah, there was, there was no way we should have been able to raise $10 million in a recession. We launched our capital campaign in 2008 in the worst time ever. I mean, everyone told us you should just go home. This is, this is not going to work. There's no way you can raise money. The, the, the world has crashed. You know, everything here has crashed. Yet time and again, we had little miracle gifts here and there. Every time we needed something, the right person would show up. It's just, it, it defies logic, imagination, anything that it would work. And it was also led by a graphic designer and a minister. Neither one of us had any experience. And we needed to know construction and real estate and development and capital fundraising. And there was, we had no chance, no shot in making this work. Yet there's a building that sits today with 120 people living in it that is proof of what's possible. And, and I think what was possible, it was not myself or Dale Mullinex who led that. It was 
the the combined talents of so many people who bumped into each other and met each other because of grace because we were we were brought together everything from mrs haley's seven dollars to an architect who worked for free to someone who poured the driveway for free all of that coming together i it it's just it's it's not accidental in my mind homelessness is such a difficult thing biggest misunderstandings that keep us from directly addressing the problem of people experiencing homelessness biggest misconceptions number one the misconception that people believe that someone who's living on the street chooses that or wants that i i have not met anyone who who says gosh when i when I was growing up, I really hoped I could be homeless. This is a really good gig. I mean, it, it is It is not. It's not something somebody wants or, or chooses. Do they sleep on the street as opposed to the shelter because maybe it's too chaotic for them? Yes, that would, that would be a correct statement. But given a choice to live somewhere with dignity inside, I've not met anyone who, who, who is sane, who, you know, we have some very delusional people who, who can't be inside. But for the most part, people want to be housed they they want to better their lives they want um, to have things so i would say that was probably the first one not all homeless are have mental illness um, there's a lot of people who um, you know got forced into homelessness because of um, addiction or a loss of a job or a health crisis and then once on the street, a lot of really horrible things happened. You know, if you're a woman, you've probably been raped. If you're a man, you've probably been beaten. A lot of horrible things cause trauma on the streets, but not everyone who's on the streets is mentally ill. Lack of sleep looks a lot like mental illness. We house some people who after 30 days of being inside, you know, people we thought were severely and persistently mentally ill. And once they had 30 days sleep, it was amazing the transformation just in the the sleep and the rest you know the rested state and a sense of safety and people who don't think affordable housing is connected to homelessness it's absolutely directly correlated um, you know as we're pushing up rents to fifteen hundred dollars twenty five hundred dollars three thousand dollars for places that you know years ago went for five hundred and a thousand and fifteen hundred you're pushing out people. Who, who want and could pay, but they, but they don't have the resources to keep up with the, with the rates. So I, I think it's, it's a lot of things and it's a very complicated issue. It's an onion that you keep peeling back and it's also not one size fits all. There is not one story that you could layer on everyone who's experiencing homelessness. There's individuals who are chronically homeless. There are families who have a primary caregiver who's, who's an addict, who's forced them onto the homes. You have you know, a couple who is, you know, lost their disability benefits and now they're homeless. I mean, there's, there's a different story um, for everyone. When you exit 277 to get onto South Boulevard mm -hmm. to come here to your office, mm -hmm. and uh, there's typically from early morning till night, someone flying a flag. They're uh, holding a piece of cardboard that says some variation of, I'm homeless, will you give me money? Mm -hmm. If you're in that lane next to that person. Yeah, I know what you're talking about. What do you think when you see that person and what do you do? Um, great question. I think two things. First, I think of my friend Eugene Coleman who taught me the most about someone experiencing homelessness. And I thought I've heard a lot of his personal stories. And he used to say, just someone looking me in the eye and nodding and acknowledging my humanness and that I wasn't invisible, that, that could mean as much as them giving me $5. So I always try not to look away. I try to make eye contact and nod and smile and acknowledge their, their humanness. Um, and then I, I wait for a feeling. Sometimes I have the feeling that, that I, I should give to them, that there's something about them, that there's something there's different. And sometimes we just need to be hands and feet in the world. So if I had money and I had that feeling combined, then I would. If, if I don't get that feeling or I don't, or I don't have cash, either one, then I will just have the eye contact and the nod of their, 
our common humanity. Um, so, but I don't give to every person I see. Um, sometimes if I have the cards that tell people where to get the services of Roof Above, um, I can hand those out or I can ask someone, hey, do you know how to get services at Roof Above? Or um, if I have the time to talk with someone, but usually the light does not allow time for a conversation. But I have stopped and talked to people if I'm, if I'm walking downtown, making sure they know where to get services. But we do have street outreach workers who are fanning throughout the city um, to try and provide that for people. When you encounter people who are angry at the homeless for being homeless, um, what type of a conversation might you have with them? Well, sometimes people just need to be heard, right? So I, I think you probably have to gauge who you're dealing with and do they just need to vent or are they, act, are they looking for any kind of understanding? And so someone who's just looking to vent, you, you might ask them the question, what happened to them? Because sometimes they're angry because either their story is similar or they were hurt by someone who had a, an addiction problem. And that's really what, what they want to talk about. So maybe it's not so much um, the person or maybe they were mugged or, or something. I, I think we could probably all have better conversations if if we started with what happened to you, you know, you know, what is your story? Cause I think there's a basic human need to feel that our stories are heard. And so I think there is a lot of that that's going on in the country right now, people not feeling heard and people wanting to be heard. And so there's those of us, we all need to listen better. It's the reason we're sitting here today talking is because you said that you wanted to, to listen more. So I think there's, there are certain people that you can have conversations with. Um, and I think there's certain people who are, who are not quite ready to have those conversations. But what I would want someone to understand about someone experiencing homelessness, there's not an us or them. It is not us who are housed and those who are not and those who are not are causing the problems. It is a we and we will we will all do better as a community if we think about how can we make sure there's a home and a place for everyone at all kinds of price points and not just um, people who have very great jobs and can afford luxury homes. We're, we really need to put into place in every community, um, you know, dignified housing choices across the board at, at all levels. If um, Yeshua, a carpenter's son from born in Bethlehem, but basically from Nazareth, uh, grew up in this area. Uh, if this person were born like today, um, this human being, let's call him Josh. So Josh, God incarnate, is manifested on the streets of Charlotte today. Where do you think he would hang? Why do I think you would hang? Gosh, there's a lot of, of grace down at Roof Above. <laughs> I maybe don't find God a lot in a pew, but boy, I found him a lot down on uh, around College North College Street, both in the volunteers and those we serve and the staff doing the work. Um, it's, it's a pretty grace-filled place. There's some miracles happening every day down there, you know, whether it's just the guy who, you know, took a shower for the first time in two weeks or... You know, the 93-year-old volunteer woman who's man in the front desk. You know, there's a, there's a lot of goodness that happens down there. I've seen people, we, we have uh, outdoor 12-step meetings now. And I've seen people walk up with hospital plastic on, people who have uh, no money and no place to go. And I've seen people who have a great deal of money go way out of their way to try to get people placed. They don't want it. They don't like it. How do you intersect? I mean, there's so many people who want to do good and then they try to do good and they just end up spending hours and hours and a lot of money and effort and everything for somebody who bounces. Well, I guess first I would say, what is your motivation for wanting to help someone? right? There's a lot of people who, who want to be the savior in someone else's life, yet you can't help someone who doesn't want to help themselves. And the second part of that is maybe the act of helping someone, even if they don't want to be helped, 
you're going to be learning more about yourself in that relationship than not. Like, like, do you have the patience? Do you have the wherewithal? You know, frankly, and I don't, I don't consider myself an, an evangelical, but you know, if you, if you read, I don't think Jesus would have been talking to people about Jesus, right? He, he, he would have just been helping because it was the right thing to do. So let's just start with that. That's very funny. And just say, you know, if, if you're helping because you, you want to help and you want to learn something and you, you know, you want to do it, then absolutely do it. If you're showing up because you need the validation that you help someone and you could say, well, you're probably going to be disappointed. And Father Greg Boyle always, he, you know, has written a book called Tattoos on the Heart and he started Homeboy Industries in LA. And he says, when people come and say, oh my gosh, you know, Father Greg, I, I, I have so much I, I want to teach. He asks them to please go away until they don't. I mean, you're, what you, what you really want are people just to walk alongside, meet you where you are, be in community, build authentic relationship and trust, and and see what happens from there. And I've learned so much more about myself in helping than probably I've ever helped anyone. Yes, some of the works that I did resulted in providing some housing, but boy, I sure learned so much from Eugene Coleman about myself and, and what I think about life and what I think about grace. Um, he, he taught me you know, back probably more than I would have ever have helped or given him. And I think that's where we get an imbalance of, of power and thinking someone, because they come from a different economic sector, has something more or less valuable to say or give than someone who doesn't. And I would argue probably 100% the opposite. So I, I think walking alongside each other, being in community, really realizing there's no us or them and being a we is hopefully where we will somehow move this world. If you have an individual or a corporation that approaches you and says, we want to give you $5 million or $10 million. And that, Great, give me their phone number. Um, and that corporation is just trying to burnish their reputation. It's strictly PR. It's like, it might as well be advertising because they want their name all over everything. They want photo ops at everything. It's essentially they're trying to buy goodwill when they have had a black eye or they're threatened yeah. with being canceled or whatever. You take their money? Well, I mean, it's an, it's an interesting argument. I just like, I don't think that, you know, I'm not in charge of Roof Above, so I wouldn't be the one in, in charge of making that decision. But um, what I, I would say is I'm not in any more or less position able to judge the motives of, of that corporation than I am able to judge the motive of the individual that we're, we're helping. And it's you also have to ask the question if the guy under the bridge is freezing at night and we say, hey, we're gonna, you know, we're gonna turn away this five million dollars on principle. Well, he'd probably rather us take the five million dollars. So it really depends on on who we're helping and, and why. I mean I think it's an interesting esoteric argument we've not really been faced with it that much but i think everyone is probably worthy of non-judgment and and you know who's to say you know not worthy of redemption someone would say the guy under the bridge is not worthy of redemption just like they might say the corporation is not worthy of redemption but i don't know that any of us here are left to judge that yeah and so. and what if you know none of us are are single-handedly solving homelessness but what if each one of us did something, whatever it is that we're able to do, how much progress could we make? How far could we go? And this is very simplistic, but basically, as I understand it, there are only three types of corporations or formal groups in the United States of America. There are governmental entities, there are for-profit corporations, and they're not for-profit. And you know, there gets to be like um, for-profit will say not-for-profit is a bunch of know-nothings. You know, they're a bunch of do-gooders, but they don't know how to do anything. Um, you know, for-profit will say government is a bunch of, you know, just, <laughs> just completely inept. 
doesn't know, you know, just is like throwing taxpayer money at the problem. Meanwhile, uh, for-profit or not-for-profit and government are saying, well, you're just a bunch of greedy bastards. You're actually the problem and you should be doing something with the solution, but you're busy counting your money. You know, so everyone has a stereotypical version of the other. Um, do you see, have you seen epiphanies in which a person from one sector has changed the way they looked at another sector by virtue of working together on the same problem, where the stereotypes broke down. All over, there's instances of, of both, of people who left the corporate world to work in the nonprofit, people worked to, who left the nonprofit to do some sort of hybrid corporate work, people in government who were the good guy who connected the nonprofit to the, the corporate. And so I think it's a little bit like, you know, you, you started out that with saying it's three sisters. Well, it's what happens in a family. Once you all sit around the dinner table and start, you know, having conversations, you, you realize you work better together if you were all, you know, gathered in the same solution. So I, I think that's what happens here. I think there's a lot we've tried at Roof Above to be, um, you know, good nonprofit partners for government and for corporations looking to solve the same problem. And I think that's what we've continued to try to do is, is put together um, solutions where nonprofit, corporate, and government are working together. I, I think our new campaign is a great example of, you know, buying a hotel that had some corporate money, that had the nonprofit, that had city money, all working together to buy an old hotel that'll be renovated for housing. The same thing, we bought an apartment complex. We'll be using that for permanent supportive housing. We'll also be using it for hospital employees so our corporate partner, but we have county partnership in that and city partnership. It's all gonna work better if, if we're all sitting down together. And I think it really is, 10 years ago, it was really hard to sit down and have the conversations because the city and the county weren't really on board with housing first or, or, or thinking that housing was part of their job jar and over the last 10 years there's been a huge shift on that so i think they've already come to the table and and so better things are happening by the same token you've probably seen big time republicans and big time democrats step up uh, when it comes to you know uh, private sector funding of these non Absolutely. We had um, corporate sponsorship in the last, and I, I think a great example is um, Mark Etheridge, Erskine Bowles, and Nelson Schwab are putting together a social venture um, pool so that they can buy existing housing, um, apartment buildings called NOAAs, Naturally Occurring Affordable Housing, preserve them and not allow developers to come in and either bulldoze them or really jack up the rates. And that is a great example of, you know, some for-profit corporate guys saying, hey, we care about Charlotte. We want to do something for this community. This is what we're choosing to do. And taking their idea to all to all different parties to, to come together to preserve housing. I think it's a great example. You've channeled your creativity in a lot of different areas. I mean, graphic arts, but you've also like written books and they're all kind of of a piece though, right? Because yeah. they all like work toward the same thing. Absolutely, I couldn't have, you know, it, it's, it's uh, Steve Jobs says you can only connect the dots looking backwards. Like I could not have connected why I was a graphic designer and then did this soup kitchen volunteer stint and then why I did you know, raising money and then, oh, I'm, I'm going to write what I, I used to draw pictures for a living. What? I'm, and then, but then I did a children's book. Looking back, I can see how all of the pictures, how all the pieces came together. Cause certainly, um, in learning how to do advertising and graphic design, I learned how to sell ideas and housing chronically homeless people was a crazy, pretty crazy idea to need to sell. But, you know, I could work on the brochures. I could work on the PowerPoints. I could work to making that um, idea understandable to people who, who would not have cared about that, right? So it was really important to have this marketing and advertising background to be able to do that. The same thing for Hopeway, I used all of that background into you know helping build Hope, Hopeway. 
a children's book. And the writing is just is understanding as we're listening to people's stories that we've housed, you know, everyone has a story. And, and how do you make someone understand a problem? You, you tell them a story. And so the books are just a manifestation of that or things that I care about or things that I think are important. Putting that together in writing to tell stories, to tell other people's stories. Most people are not Kathy Izzard. Most people are doing the volunteer work. They're doing what they can. They're volunteering at a soup kitchen, et cetera, et cetera. But the thing is, if you work long-term, if you keep going back to any of a number of these volunteer opportunities, you see miracles. Of course you do. And, and you know, just helping one person, de- deciding that you are going to, you know, change or affect the life of, of one person, the ripple effect of that can be enormous. And I, so I, I don't think um, you can minimize that. You know, someone choosing to tutor one child in a Title I school and the ripple effect that will have on that child's life and his children's life and the grandchildren's life. So if everyone did something, um, my favorite children's book growing up was called What If Everybody Did? And I was, you know, I'm so struck by that still today. What if everybody did? What if everyone was just kind and did the right thing and tried to help one person? What would this look like? Can you imagine a Charlotte, North Carolina without anyone living on the street. God, wouldn't that be fantastic? Can you imagine it? Yes, I can. Mostly because we have an incredible leadership team at Roof Above that's working every day to make that happen. Uh, If we got struck by lightning and all that was remaining was this tape, what is Kathy Izzard's legacy? I hope someone would say I was someone who did good and lived well and loved well. Thank you. Thank you. I honor your work. Thank you. I appreciate your time. Thank you. Thanks for thanks for listening. Thanks for talking. Sure. Kathy Izzard has written not one but two books, both of which are superb. The first is The Hundred Story Home, and the more recent book, The Last Ordinary Hour, Living Life Now That Nothing Will Ever Be the Same. Really well written really well-reviewed and well-received. Kathy, I appreciate your time enormously. Man Listening is a production of Unmediated LLC in cooperation with the Queen City Podcast Network and Balto Creative Media. Allison Andrews at Andrews Creative and Rachel Clapp-Miller are developmental producers. Sally Higgins at Higgins & Owens tries to keep us legal. Our music is A Day at the Park by the group Pictures of the Floating World. Your announcer is Katherine Smith. That's me. Please go to our Patreon page. You'll find us at patreon.com. Look for Man Listening. One word, no spaces. We hope you'll join us by becoming a member. A small investment can raise up the conversation. If you want exclusive member merch, like a t-shirt, we can arrange that too. A personal thank you and a shout out to everyone who has supported, is supporting, and will support Man Listening. Thank you so very much. Don't forget to support us at Patreon. We believe one voice can change the conversation. Click the subscribe button, and next week you'll hear... I learned about myself that I was not going to do anything that I could not live with. That's next week on Man Listening. Thanks. Thanks.